Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Every single call was a new anecdote and a new name and, and you should talk to her and I'm sure you heard about this and it, it became clear very quickly this wasn't just one rogue actor. This was, this was a culture issue. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast over 14 years, 500 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the business news podcast section on iTunes. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years and on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. My guest is John Wartheim. He is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated. He's a correspondent for 60 Minutes. You can find him on Twitter at John underscore Wartheim. He recently co-authored a explosive piece for Sports Illustrated called Inside the Corrosive Workplace Culture of the Dallas Mavericks. He co-authored it with Jessica Luther. He also broke the Jerry Richardson story a few months back about the owner of the Carolina Panthers and his inappropriate behavior, which led to Richardson putting the Panthers up for sale soon after the story broke. John, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Good. How are you, Brian? Good. Uh, you're a busy guy. And I would imagine if people see you like coming down the hall, they're like, they're hiding. They're like, Oh God, what's this guy? <laughs> Congratulations on, I mean, really changing the culture at two, uh, pro sports franchises. Again, the Panthers and the Mavericks. Let's start with when you're doing these types of stories. I think people wonder, like I've talked to investigative reporters before. Do you get tips on these? Do you like, how do you come across these stories? Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, no, no two stories are the same, but yeah, these, these were basically, these were basically tips. Uh, the, it's funny you mention them because the Mavericks story literally came the day after the, uh, the Panther story posted. And I, you know, the, literally within hours of that Panther story, I had a number of people with, um, sort of different tips around sports, but I, I had two separate ones about the Mavericks organization and American Airlines Center that were fairly detailed. And that was kind of the, the one I chose to dove in to dive into. And it was, I mean, I, I keep saying it's one of these stories where every single call was a new anecdote and a new name. And, and you should talk to her. And I'm sure you heard about this. And it, it became clear very quickly. This wasn't uh, just one rogue actor. This was, this was a culture issue. Do you find that in this Me Too times up shift that we're in right now that people are more willing to tell their story than they've been in recent years? Totally, totally. I mean, these neither of these stories, I, I think, necessarily happened um, a year ago. I mean, I think it's, it's definitely part of uh, the, this is very much of a piece with this, uh, this, this cultural moment we're having. And, you know, I, I think there are a lot of women that um, are sort of rethinking about 
events that happened to them years ago. I mean, so some of this is, is current. I mean, you know, again, in, in the Maverick story, there was an employee who a week ago today was still employed. Um, I mean, some of this is, is current, but I think there are also a, a lot of people that are thinking about um, events in their past in a different way. And again, with the Maverick story, I mean, some of these some of these allegations were 10 years old, but I think in this in this moment we're having, there are a lot of women who are feeling emboldened and empowered uh, in, in a way that maybe they weren't, uh, you know, six months ago. So do you think, you know, do you find that, that some of the women who have experienced this harassment in the workplace, have they documented it and they've just been sitting on it? Or does it just, is it, you know, hey, I don't have that email or that text. I don't have the smoking gun, so to speak, but... This was the culture, and, and I want to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that at the time, I mean, people sort of interpreted this different ways at the time, and in some cases they, um, you know, they complained and nothing came of it. In other cases they didn't feel like they were in a position where they were comfortable filing a complaint. And in some cases, I mean, two of the women in that we spoke to with the Mavericks were so frustrated by the HR apparatus, they they started taking their own notes. But I've talked to other women who say, boy, I just thought this was, you know, one, one woman's her quote to me was sort of tough enough buttercup. That was my attitude about being a woman working in sports and it wasn't fun and I didn't appreciate it. But at the time, I didn't realize this was harassment per se. In retrospect, I wish I had taken notes. I wish I'd acted more, but I just thought this was sort of the, uh, the tax you pay for being a woman working in, in the sports world. So it's interesting you write about the HR exec who I believe has since been fired since his story broke. The the executive was male, correct? Correct. So, you know, I see this not only in sports but in in a lot of companies where the breakdown is in HR and John, I've been saying like if you really want to get HR's attention when you go into HR, bring your own lawyer. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, this was, um, I mean, I don't think it's the fact that he was, this was just, you, you look at the whole apparatus, and the president of the Mavericks in 1998 was investigated for sexually inappropriate behavior. It was an internal investigation, so, you know, who, that, that always sort of raises red flags. Um, he kept his job, and part of his job was hiring a new HR director. So basically, the, the subject of the mm. investigation is now hiring the person who's supposed to look into future investigations. So the HR director comes aboard, he answers to the CEO. The CEO is the guy who not only is his boss, but is the guy who hired him. He owes his job to this guy. Right. He doesn't he doesn't have an office, the HR guy does. He has a not enclosed workspace. And it's right near the CEO's office. So if you have a complaint against the CEO, you're going to a man who not only owes his job to the subject of your complaint but he has a workspace right near the CEO's office. I mean, it just, when, when these women said, I didn't feel comfortable going to HR, you realize how flawed the sort of office culture was. And I, I think, um, you know, I mean, I think there's some HR departments that uh, are, are quite capable, but I also think, you know, these, these are sports organizations, right? I mean, you, you know, you, you start in sports and you used to always hear these stories here about the NBA as well. They started small and it used to be the, you know, the GM was also the marketing guy. And it was a team. And these organizations have really grown in the past 10, 15 years. But remember, they started basically as, as sports. You know, it was, it was game night. And you hear all these stories about how you know, the assistant coach was also the ticket taker and the media relations guy was also the marketer. 
And so you don't have this kind of professional workplace. I mean, these franchises may be worth billions of dollars, but they're run like, you know, the, the neighborhood hardware. I mean, I, I say this, I'm generalizing, but these, these are uh, organizations that don't have the most professional structure. And these valuations are phenomenal, but you get inside some of these organizations and they're not set up like Fortune 500 companies. And I think we saw the same thing with, uh, saw the same thing in Charlotte. Um, you know, it's, I think some of this is just kind of organizationally it's flawed. And part of that is because not that long ago, you know, the, the media guide of uh, team employees took up one page. It was, uh, you know, a, a coach, a GM, and, uh, you know, may, maybe, you know, maybe someone answering phones. So I, I think a lot of this owes to, uh, you know, there are a lot of factors here, but I think, I think one factor that I've noticed is that these sports franchise don't necessarily have the most professional organizational setup. The other thing, John, that I think is interesting is you've got these owners now. Let's use the NBA as an example, and I guess let's use Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban's on Shark Tank. Mark Cuban has a lot of different business interests. These are toys for some of the owners. They're engaged, but they're not as engaged. They're not sitting in the office every day. They're not talking to the CEO every day. So it underscores the importance of hiring the right CEO, because if you're not watching your toys, so to speak, every day, you need to have someone in there who you trust where this doesn't take place. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there's, there's a real range. I mean, you know this. There's a real range of sports owners, right? So sometimes these are almost passive investors who, you know, you may show up for a few games a year, but, um, you know, you, you're basically doing this. I mean, there's some owners that don't live in the same city as their franchise. What makes the Mavericks interesting is Mark Cuban, of course, is known as this attentive, hands-on owner right. who, you know, is traveling with the team on road games and who knows – all the refs and their tendencies and the analytics. Um, I mean, Mark, when I talked to him, he made the distinction. He said, listen, I'm hands-on, but that's on the basketball side. I, I let the business side do their own thing. I let I defer to the employees. Um, but I, I think your, your point is really, uh, your point is a good one. Um, you know, you, you don't own a team, right? You, you don't, you don't buy a team so that you can work on HR issues and then hear about, uh, you don't, you don't buy a team to go to, you know, sales meetings and deal with HR complaints. You buy a team so you can sit courtside or you can sit in the owner's suite in the NFL. So I think they're, they're owners that um, are into their team, but not the business side. And so, yeah, exactly. Ha- having a CEO that you trust and is competent is, is absolutely essential. Even if you're a hands-on owner, it doesn't necessarily mean you're hands-on dealing with the office. It means you're hands-on in the sense that uh, you're, you're Jerry Jones and you're second-guessing the play calling. Now, with that being said about Mark Cuban, you have a really interesting part of your story. Earl Sneed, who was a Mavs reporter, he had documented instances of abuse. And Mark Cuban says he did not fire Sneed because, quote, he would go out there and get hired again and do it somewhere else. That might be one of the lamest excuses I've ever heard for not firing someone for what Earl Sneed did, especially in this culture. It seems like... Cuban has been apologetic, but how does someone as smart as Mark Cuban make that decision? Yeah, I mean, just to, to be clear, Earl, Earl Sneed had a you know he had a, he had a criminal matter for for uh, domestic violence. He pled guilty to assault, and part of that guilty plea meant that he couldn't he wasn't denied entry into Canada. So when the Mavericks played the Raptors, Earl Sneed couldn't make the trip. So that tells me that 
clearly the team, at least some people, had to know about this incident. Right. Um, he, he keeps his job, and two years later, there's a domestic violence complaint, a second one by a woman he's dating who's also a Mavericks employee. So now he has two domestic violence incidents. One of them had a, a criminal matter, and the other one was against a coworker who was a Mavs employee. And as you and I talked a week ago today, Earl Sneed was still employed. Uh, I think a lot of people have, have seized on that as something really shocking and, and galling. And, you know, I at some level, I mean, somebody said this, and listen, we shouldn't be throwing parades for Mark Cuban, but I think the, the flip side of this is Mark's been pretty upfront saying, this was my screw-up, no excuses, this one's on me. Um, I think it, at some level, to, to his credit, there's, there's been some accountability on this one. And it's, as you, you called it a lame excuse, but um, I, I do give Mark some credit for uh, addressing it and owning it. I mean, I, I, I wrote about the Sports Illustrated, but the, the Carolina Panthers piece in December, I don't think Jerry Richardson has made a public statement on these allegations at all. Certainly hasn't spoken to the media, certainly didn't apologize to any of the women or, or the, you know, the, the African-American employee. Um, he hasn't addressed immunity that gave him, you know, $87 million for stadium renovations. Deny it. I mean, for, for that matter, go, go and say, uh, I, I take issue with this. Um, nothing. So again, Mark, Mark Cuban has a lot to answer for. And I, I think he knows that. But I, I give him some credit for owning this and being accountable. No, I agree with you. And by the way, Jerry Richardson did make a statement. And you know what his statement was, John? He put, yeah, I'm he, selling the team. He, I'm selling the team. 24 hours after your story ran, I'm about, selling the team. Six hours. Yeah, yeah like. It was about six hours. And nothing <laughs> and no acknowledgement whatsoever of, uh, yeah. I, um, that speaks volumes, right? Well, I mean, I, I was struck by a few things on that. Um, first of all, like, in, in this climate, you think about all the, the Me Too, you know, Louis C.K., you think about all the, the range of responses um, that people who've been accused have, have had. I, I don't think sheer silence has been any of them. But the other thing, my part of it was the lack of apology or any sort of acknowledgement, but also the, this, this guy vis-a-vis the Charlotte community, and whether it was, you know, the taxpayers building him a stadium or the taxpayers paying for his renovation, the lack of accountability to what essentially are constituents, what are essentially stakeholders, um, was, was really, well, I'll charitably say surprising. And, uh, well, we believe it at that. But, um, yeah, Mark Cuban and Jerry Richardson, uh, and, and again, I mean, Jerry Richardson was accused of this. Mark Cuban is accused of sort of a lack of oversight, but, to be clear, no no woman said Mark Cuban harassed me. Right. Um, but again, again, Cuban's Cuban's response versus uh, Jerry Richardson's response and their levels of accountability and their levels of accessibility um, are, are pretty striking. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. 
They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. So, John, we've talked about this locker room culture that exists in sports. And the thing that's always so surprising to me, you and I have kind of talked about this offline. You know, you've got a guy like Teradima Usri, the former Nike executive, the Mavs CEO for, what, 17 years? He had worked in the CBA. Like, this guy, this wasn't his first job. He had a history of this kind of behavior. And it's amazing to me when executives, coaches, athletes, whoever, they repeatedly get hired and then we act surprised that this happened when it happened at their previous stop. So here's my question. Does anyone do their research anymore? Does anyone call and say, hey, what was this guy like at his last stop? And, oh, those actions are concerning. Maybe we don't want to hire him. You know, I... My, my, I, I agree with you in theory, but I think think about how this plays out in practice, which is someone lodges a complaint. Sometimes employees are given the chance to resign. Listen, this this could get ugly, or you can resign. Um, there are often legal documents that are attached to this. So, so Tradima Usri, after the Mavericks, goes to Under Armour. Um, he lasts less than two months. There's an alleged... Uh, sexual assaults um, in, in an elevator, and he lasted Under Armour for, for less than two months. But he, he resigned, and the press release called it an organizational, I, I think an organizational reshuffling. Um, he, he wasn't fired. There are probably some, some confidentiality agreements as a condition of his resignation. So if he applied for a job tomorrow, I'm not sure, and you called Under Armour, I'm not sure they are even at liberty to say, what what what's alleged to have happened? So, I mean, I think that um, yeah, in, in theory, you would think uh, eventually word would travel. But I think the way these things work out pragmatically, the way these things work out, especially with high level executives that are often negotiating fairly complex severance packages, they're given an opportunity to resign, and a lot of times there is some sort of confidentiality to go with that. So I, I'm not sure that e- even if uh, you know he applied for a job tomorrow i'm not sure under armor would even contractually be at liberty to uh to say yeah we we had a had a harassment issue with him but isn't it ironic john that in this day and age where if you're going to draft a pro athlete if you're getting ready for the nfl draft to the nba draft you're doing intelligence you're talking to the eighth grade coach you're talking to the aau coach like you're going to extensive lengths to make sure that the person that you're about to draft is going to be representing your franchise in the way you want them to represent you that they're healthy blah 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 but with your ceo you don't go to those same investigative lengths to make sure that the person who's going to run your organization has all of those same traits i think it's really backwards yeah, that, that's that's a um, that's a really good point. I mean, again, some, some of that is the the basketball side versus the business side. But no, you're right. If uh, if one tenth the effort went into uh, 
you know, some of these high level executives doing background checks and, and I don't know if you need to give them Wonderlick scores, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you've got, uh, you get, you got six round draft picks who have been through all sorts of vetting and all sorts of, uh, you know, scouts reports and analytics and, and, a, and a CEO can be hired with, uh, with very little. That's, that's, that's a good point you raise. So the NBA, as part of your story, has established a confidential hotline. I think this is long overdue, sadly. I think all of the sports leagues should do this. We've seen even companies like NBC, after the Matt Lauer, establish a confidential hotline. Do you think that's the direction we're headed here? Because people may not trust walking into HR. They may not trust going to their boss and saying, you know what, this is happening to me. I need to report this confidentially. And by the way, this is the league governing, not the team. I think this is something we're going to see more of. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I I think one thing that's interesting to me about all this is the relationship between the league and the team. And where do these where do these boundaries begin and end? And can the NBA do something like this, where they're coming in and essentially providing something that the team didn't? Um, can does the NBA have the right to ask Mavericks employees to turn over their emails um, to, to see all the severance agreements and all the contracts? It's um, I mean I, I think it makes sense. I think it's clear that there's some problems in the HR and the reporting apparatus of some of these teams. And I mean, again, the, the Mavs are a prime example where you had an HR director who worked next to the CEO. The CEO hired him. This HR director also had, uh, we, we had been given some copies of emails he'd sent around, sort of the, you know, f- forwarding emails, but one of them was, was sort of not, not charitable to Jason Collins' decision to, uh, to, to to tell us that he's gay a few years ago. Well, if you're, you know, if, if you're uh, a gay or lesbian Mavericks employee and you know that your HR director is sending around emails to other employees uh, protesting same-sex marriage, you probably aren't very likely to share your complaints with the guy. Right. So I, I think the NBA doing this, third, I mean, I think the NBA, I think it makes a lot of sense. I am not sure if this would survive a legal challenge, honestly. I mean, I think all this goes to issues we see all the time about whether the league is a single entity or whether these are individual businesses that can run how they want. I mean, does the NFL have the right to, you know, essentially subpoena Jerry Richardson? I think that that's an interesting issue that remains to be seen. I think this makes sense. I think it's a good first move. I don't think anybody is going to protest this. If Adam Silver is going to set up a hotline where all NBA employees for any team can independently call in um, who might not be comfortable going to their individual team's HR department, I think that's that's a good idea. I don't think anyone uh, would take issue with that. But I, I do think we're going to see some interesting lines being drawn about what the league versus team relationship is. Well, so here's a story for your guy, Michael McCann, and he may already know the answer to this, but as you know, I worked in the NBA, I worked for the Portland Trailblazers. My understanding of this, John, whether it's the NBA or the NFL, is when you own a team, you have certain agreements with the league, and the league does have the right to make sure that the team is reflecting the league in a positive way, and if it's not, 
then the league has certain rights to investigate. So, you know, am I going to sit here as a lawyer and, and go into all of those right now? No. But I do think the league has certain oversight rights with the team. It's almost like a morality clause that if you're going to have a team in our league, you've got to abide by these rules. And if you don't, then we can unilaterally make some decisions, commissioners' powers, like we saw used with uh, Donald Sterling. And, you know, I would think the league may get a little more heavy-handed here. And, you know, your story, again, with Jerry Richardson and how he handled things versus Mark Cuban is is an interesting one because, you know, will the NFL change their ways or increase their oversight over teams where things are going on like Carolina? But I'm pretty sure that the leagues have some... Uh, governing rules with the teams and, and have those powers. Yeah, they, they also have disclosures as well. So, so when your owner is, um, you know, signing NDAs with employees as a, you know, in, as a way of settling allegations, does the team not have an obligation to tell the league about that? Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I think you're right. It's, it's a good column for, uh, for Mike McCann. We'll give him a name check. But again, I mean, I think. This is an, in- an interesting dimension to this whole discussion is where do uh, league powers start and end? So Mark Cuban has set up an investigation. He's brought in some pretty reputable outside people who seem to not have ties to him in the past. But I think the skeptic goes, wait a minute here. This is Cuban's investigation if the findings come back and they're embarrassing to the organization, is he really going to reveal those versus if the NBA conducted the investigation? Now we might get somewhere because they don't have the same, you know, they don't want their league to look bad, but, you know, it's more of a third-party outside investigation than Cuban running it internally. How do you think that goes down? Yeah, I think that um, if, if you look at, and the same goes for the, Carolina Panthers, who are being investigated through the NFL, but through Mary Jo Kane, you, you know, Mary Jo uh, White, who used to, uh, you know, used to run the SEC. I mean, I think the, the individuals who are conducting these investigations are uh, doing this with the expectation of independence. I, I don't think. I mean, for, for all the concerns we might have, I, I don't think uh, Mark Cuban editing an unflattering report should, should necessarily be one of them. Um, I suspect these investigations uh, will, I mean, you, you would think they'd be made available to the public. I, I suspect they will be a transparent document. So besides setting up confidential hotlines, making HR a safer place to go, I mean, John, we've both been around sports for a long time. I've worked for a team. I, I have teams who are clients right now of mine. Like, it's a systematic problem. This is not a one-off for the Panthers or for the Mavericks. How does this get cleaned up? I think, you know, I think sort of education and awareness. I mean, I suspect, uh, you know, a lot of people are thinking long and hard in in sports and outside of sports. I think in every workplace. I don't think this is necessarily, we're talking about the Mavericks and the Panthers here, but I think, you know, it's it's media and finance and government and Alfred and Harvey Weinstein and entertainment and restaurants. I mean, I think this is, you know, every sector is really re-examining these these office relationships. Um, I, I do think that sports. I mean, some of it is the the gender imbalance in sports, and then some of it is kind of the, the, the nature of sports. But I, I also are you way in him. This is just my theory, but I, I do think that the fact that these organizations have grown so quickly 
and they started out as, as teams where the product was you happened on game night, and right. now they're you know year round operations. I, I still think that a lot of these sports organizations might be worth billions of dollars, but they're not run the way your conventional billion dollar companies are. And maybe mm. you get the management. I mean, any organizational consultant who's gone into the Mavericks and said, wait a second, the HR guy doesn't have an office? Wait a second, the HR guy who was hired by the CEO who's already had harassment allegations against him is setting up shop outside the CEO's office? I mean, I think if you had some sort of organizational consultant come in to these sports teams, um, I, I suspect they would have quite a bit of work. Again, these, these are not publicly traded teams. These, I mean, publicly traded companies. These are companies that have grown quite a bit very quickly. Again, the core product is sports. It's not offices. And I think, I mean, you, you've been in, you've been around teams too, Brian. I mean, some of these teams are, you know, there a lot of times they're family owned and you have the owner's children who have these executive titles that they're really not trained to do. These are big time businesses in terms of their balance sheets, but they're run sometimes like small family owned business. So I think that can be, uh, that can be a problem. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Reserve your spot for the 2018 Sports PR Summit presented by the Players Tribune on Tuesday, May 22nd at the Players Tribune headquarters in New York City. The Sports PR Summit brings together elite athletes, national media members, and senior PR and social media executives for panel discussions, featured conversations, and networking opportunities. The event allows PR execs to lead with a better understanding of the elite athletes, owners, commissioners, and national media people they're working with. The event also allows attendees to see Derek Jeter's one-of-a-kind digital publishing company, The Players' Tribune, up close, as well as network with top Players' Tribune executives. Past Sports PR Summit speakers include NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, NASCAR legend Jeff Gordon, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, NFL stars Anquan Bolden and Demarcus Ware, Cleveland Cavaliers all-star Isaiah Thomas, WNBA legend Lisa Leslie, ESPN reporters Tom Rinaldi and Jeremy Schapp, and Sports Illustrated executive editor and 60 Minutes correspondent John Wartime. The Sports PR Summit has sold out each of its first five years, and there are only 125 spots. Reserve your spot today by going online to sportsprsummit.com. Follow the Sports PR Summit on Twitter and Instagram at Sports PR Summit. I hope to see you on May 22nd at the Players' Tribune in New York City. Now back to our conversation. Well, so the other dirty little secret in sports, I'm sure you already know this, but I'll, I'll tell our audience, is the teams hate when the league comes in and is heavy-handed. So, you know, like the NBA has something called Teambo, where they go in and share best practices with marketing, and here's how the Knicks are doing it, or here's how the Lakers are doing it, and it's working really well. Here's what you should do. Like, they hate when the league comes in. The NFL teams hate when the NFL comes in and says, this is how you have to splice and dice your social media video. They want to do it their way. They don't want to have to do it the way the NFL wants it. So there's this natural friction between the league office and what they want to command from high above and what the team wants and the owners of the teams. But I think you bring up a really good point that, you know, like when I started the Blazers, there were 40 employees. When we built the arena, there were like 400 employees. So it explodes when you own your own arena and you're running events year round. And it is a multi, you know, million, sometimes billion dollar business. And a lot of times it has exploded overnight. So I think you bring up a really good point. So if you're the NBA, I mean, we both know Adam Silver. 
I had him on stage at uh, Sports PR Summit last year. One of the most progressive, innovative sports executives there is. I can't see where Mark Cuban gets away unscathed on this. I, I've got to think that Adam Silver is going to fine him, take away draft picks. There's going to be some punishment on this, wouldn't you think? I, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to speculate. Um, I mean, I think there's there's been a PR cost for sure. I mean, again, I think we do need to bear in mind that Mark Cuban was never himself accused of harassment. Um, but it's his organization. To, to the workplace. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the only problem is I, a, a fine I could see. I do have a bit of a problem punishing the basketball side. Um, I mean, yeah, I think you mentioned this before, but this this is one you know sports and sex scandal that has nothing to do with athletes. Right. If anything, we kept hearing again and again how the athletes were the ones who were respectful and accommodating, and, and whether it was Dirk Nowitzki or Vince Carter or Rick Carlisle. They were treating women with with full respect. It seems to me taking away draft picks and um, doing something that would materially impact team itself seems a, a little unfair and misguided. Is, is Mark Cuban subject to is the Dallas Mavericks subject to a fine from the league? That that I could certainly see happening, but I'm not sure uh, taking away draft picks is is really fair, especially because that's going to impact most people who had zero to do with this. Yeah. It's going to be interesting because I think if you take away draft picks or hurt them on the basketball side, that's really what's going to impact the organization. Um, finding Mark Cuban like $600,000 like they did last week for talking about tanking, that's like finding him $25. Like that, that's, you're dealing with a multi-billionaire. So I think, you know, it is going to be interesting, but I can't imagine where there's not some sort of penalty at the end of this. It sends a message to other teams saying, look, if you're going to run your team like this, this is what's going to happen to you. Like, I think Adam Silver is going to fire the shot that that is heard loud and clear across the rest of the league. So people know, like, if my shop is like this, I better take inventory and clean it up pretty quick because I don't want that same penalty. Right. And I, and I don't think, uh, you know, I, I don't think. Not not unlike Donald Sterling, I think politically that's that's fairly safe. I mean, I, I don't think uh, a financial penalty to a team where you seem to have a culture of harassment and misogyny is. is but I don't think Adam Silver is going to get a lot of blowback from that. So before I let you go, I want to dig in a little bit on this college basketball investigation by the Fed. So uh, in the last few days, we've seen that Sean Miller, the coach at University of Arizona caught on wiretap reportedly discussing a $100,000 payment to one of his players. Uh, there's reportedly 3,000 hours of wiretap tapes that the feds have gathered. They've seized the computer of Andy Miller. That's only one agent, and they've already gotten like lots of information just from seizing his computer. So this, to me, I've been saying this, John, and, and I've said this on my show before. Like I did work for Nike. I ran PR on the AAU side of things. I saw Nike All-America camp. Like, I saw some things that I can't talk about on this show, but I saw some things dating back 20 years ago that led me to, like, think at some point this is all going to be unearthed. It's all going to be exposed. And now we're seeing some of those things. But I guess my question to you is, like, this is going to be pretty widespread, don't you think? Like, Sean Miller's not going to be the only guy. We've already seen Patino go down. Like, I think there are going to be some very big names, some iconic coaches and programs that take a fall before this is all said and done. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's already started to happen. And I, I just think what ultimately is going on here is that markets do not like to be distorted, whether that's prohibition, whether that's, you know, genes in, in, communist, uh, in communist Russia, that black markets will form. And here you have a lot of money trading hands. You have a lot of people getting wealthy. You have shoe companies sponsoring universities. You have multi-billion dollar TV contracts with college athletics saying to the labor, we're not paying you You'll have four years of education and nice training tables, but we're not going to pay you wages. You're basically begging for Mark to be corrupted. Right. It would be illogical. I mean, it would, it would be irrational if the players didn't want to get paid and push to get played. It would be irrational if the schools didn't try to find ways around the system to pay the labor. It's, it's almost, I mean, what, what would have to happen for amateurism to stay pure amid all of this money would be so economically irrational it would never happen so basically uh you know you you're sort of this this could any economist could have predicted this not even knowing we were talking about college sports just kind of explaining the fact pattern and you know the strength coach can earn six hundred thousand dollars but the quarterback doesn't get paid people are going to find a way around that people are rational actors and whether it is through shoe companies whether it's through agents, whether it's through, you know, FedEx envelopes of cash payments. I, I guess one thing that's fair about all this is this is essentially a story that we've heard about for, for 25 years. And this is not particularly, none of this is particularly high tech. Um, this is, you know, I mean, my colleague Alex Wolf wrote a book about this exact same scenario in the, in the late 80s. Uh, pe- people don't like to work for free, especially when other people are benefiting off their wages and as college sports have become increasingly more valuable and as you know you you think about every big time college program that not only has a a, you know chunk of tv money but they have there's a conference network that's a source of revenue there are side deals with shoe and apparel companies that are sources of revenue they're philanthropy to the school through these athletes You, you kind of are asking for this and um, you know, you don't expect necessarily something as brazen as, as Sean Miller picking up a phone and doing the deal himself. But um, again, this this situation in, in college sports, it, it kind of uh, it, it would be crazy if it didn't happen. At least, sort of, if you view this as an if you view this as an economist, he would say, or he, she would say, of course, what, what did you expect was going to happen? Um, and you know, I, again, I, I saw Mark Emmert's quote. Um, I'm, I'm not in, in entirely sure uh, w- what to make of that, but as long as athletes are generating this much revenue and as long as athletes are not being compensated for generating this kind of revenue, we will have uh, continuing scales. Yeah, I mean, I sat down with Emmer in December in New York for 90 minutes, and one of my biggest takeaways was he said, look, if we start paying the athletes, we're not going to pay the 18, 19, 20-year-olds we're going to open this up and we're going to go get guys from the G League. We're going to get guys who are playing in the CFL. Like, if we're going to pay players, the young guys aren't the best players. Like, if we're going to turn this into professional, we're going to go get those types of players. I don't know that I buy that, but it, it'll be interesting to see. Like, if it does truly become a free market, you know, are you seeing 
25 year olds playing college football and college basketball because they're better athletes than the 17 or 18 year old. And, you know, they're on the cusp of making the NBA, but they're not quite there yet or the cusp of the NFL. I think that's going to be interesting to watch. The other thing that's different here, John, is the FBI, to my knowledge, at least since I've been doing this show, they have not gotten involved in this. It's always been the NCAA who's been providing oversight and supposedly management to college sports. The FBI obviously has jurisdiction that the NCAA doesn't have for wiretaps and and things of that nature. So I think that's why this story is a little different. We're like, okay, finally, like we've got some hardcore evidence, 3,000 hours worth of wiretap tape here that the NCAA could have never pulled off. Yeah, of course, the the flip side of that is, is this the best uh, use of FBI time and resources to go after – Andy Miller's agency and a bunch of uh, one-and-done players. But, no, I mean, the, the NCAA cannot say to an agent, uh, we'll reduce your sentence if you wear a wire and cooperate. Um, I mean, I, I think that there's some element to this of, uh, you know, it's it's all the, the headlines talking and, and you didn't. But at the same time, if, if someone had said to you uh, five or 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, schools are figuring out ways around amateur rules and, kids are getting paid especially the best kids you you wouldn't it's it's like Casablanca you you would not expect uh you you would not project shock but i think where the shock is going to come in for some fans maybe not people like you and me is you know just like the fall we saw paterno take like it's for different reasons but i think there are going to be some iconic coaches that fall as part of this i mean i don't know if you want to put patino in that group he had pretty good success as a college basketball coach, and I think in the first paragraph of his obituary is going to be this, that things ended in controversy and disgrace. I think you're going to see some other iconic coaches who are going to go out that way, and it's going to change the narrative of their career. And maybe some people will go, well, gosh, we knew all along that a program that big and someone who was getting the players that they got, that was going on. But I think we'll have proof that it was indeed going on. Yeah, I mean, look look at the uh, the schools that have been named in the past seventy two hours, and uh, you have some fairly prominent programs and prominent coaches. But again, when when strength and conditioning coaches are making more than half a million dollars a year, yeah, and yeah. players are getting uh, an education that you know the alarming number of which don't complete. Uh, and so some nice meals at the training table and tutoring and, you know, sweatpants and shoes. I, I'm not sure what people thought was going to happen. All right. Before I let you go, we've been friends for a long time. You are a, a prolific author as well. Some of your books that you've written are, are fantastic. I know you're super busy with Sports Illustrated and 60 Minutes and Tennis Channel. And But are you working on any books? Oh man, um, I, I should uh, I should watch what I say here. Uh, I, uh, all right, I, I don't want to put I you in this. A book. <laughs> I um, no, I just it's a bandwidth thing, and uh, I, you know, it's just only so many hours in the day. But uh, we've we've got a couple projects we owe someone. Okay. With that. All right. John Wartime, he is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, correspondent on 60 Minutes. You can follow him on Twitter at John underscore Wartime. That's W-E-R-T-H-E-I-M. Also covers tennis better than anyone else. John, thank you so much for being on Sports Business Radio, and we'll catch up with you soon.
You got it. Anytime. Thanks, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio is brought to you by MKTG. MKTG is a leading global lifestyle and marketing agency with 33 offices in 19 countries, including sports centers of excellence in New York, Paris, Madrid, Melbourne, and Tokyo. MKTG specializes in delivering strategic business-oriented marketing solutions for leading brands via sport and entertainment marketing, live experiences, retail marketing, hospitality, B2B engagement, and sponsorship marketing. Visit the MKTG website at mktg.com and review their insightful findings as part of their Decoding 2.0 study. Decoding 2.0 solidifies the need for a shift in thinking when selecting and marketing sport and lifestyle sponsorships. This unique study arms brand marketers with the quantitative data they need to specifically target those consumers most open to brand messaging and sponsorship, as well as provides a specific roadmap that identifies those tactics likely to produce the most receptive fans. Until now, the sponsorship industry has focused more on fan passion and avidity to identify sponsorships and develop activation strategies. Decoding 2.0 reveals the need to also understand the importance of fan receptivity. Follow MKTG on Twitter at MKTG. We'll bring MKTG's expertise to life during future segments on Sports Business Radio, so stay tuned for those. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. Thanks to our friends at MKTG. You can find them on Twitter at MKTG. Their website is mktg.com. They're a global lifestyle marketing agency, 33 offices in 19 countries, a leading sports sponsorship and activation agency. Make sure to check them out at mktg.com. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps, and, of course, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at sportsbusinessradio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio.